You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. This season of Strong Opinions Loosely Held is brought to you by Spotify. If you're a fan of our show, check out Good as Hell. It's a new spotlight by Spotify in partnership with Refinery29. On Good As Hell, you can hear host Lizzo as she talks with the leading ladies of rap about breaking down barriers. It's more than just a podcast. It's a safe space for all women in music. Spotlight also gets you way closer to the story with related photos, videos, and animations available with each episode. Good As Hell, a new spotlight only on Spotify. Hey, everyone. I'm Elisa Kreisinger, and welcome to Strong Opinions Loosely Held from Refinery29. Last year, Me Too hit Twitter timelines and newspaper headlines all over the world. In its best moments, the hashtag created solidarity between women across race, sexual orientations, and nationalities. But one border Me Too had trouble crossing was what's commonly referred to as the Great Firewall of China. When the hashtag came up against the country's tightly controlled digital space, it was quickly wiped out by government censors. You had the literal translation of Me Too, Wo Ye Shi. So it literally just means Me Too. That was censored, and a number of other kind of translations of this were censored. That's digital scholar An Xiaomina. And so the remix there was to actually just call it Me Too, which is, means rice rabbit or rice bunny. It sounds exactly like Me Too, and it's, it is hopping around the internet and is standing in for the Me Too movement. Chinese memesters started using images and emojis of bunnies besides bowls of rice to talk about feminism and sexual assault. It was an image-based pun that slipped past the country's censors. I think what's really interesting is seeing how meme culture, political meme culture, spreads across borders and boundaries, and how these techniques and how these conversations um, can leap across language, leap across ostensibly what's, a, what's supposed to be a censored internet, um, and can spark conversation. On studies the way memes spread across social movements. She became interested in Chinese memes in particular in 2011, when she was working with famous Chinese artist Ah Weiwei on a gallery show in Korea. And it was that year, it was a very consequential year uh, for the world, I think. You had the Arab Spring in a Egypt, you had the uh, Occupy movement in the United States, and people were becoming more aware of how the internet and social movements were intersecting. While all of this was happening, there was a major crackdown in China, and a number of activists, including Ah Weiwei, were disappeared. Uh, mentions of his name were censored. Um, mentions of, of other activists were censored. And um, it was very difficult to use uh, Chinese social media and talk about uh, what was happening. But even though Ah Weiwei's name was being erased from the Chinese internet, An noticed his presence was peeking through in other ways. What was interesting was shortly after that was a number of memes. So in addition to people saying Ai Weiwei, they said Ai Weilai. It's a play, play on words with his name that allowed for people to talk about him until the censors caught up with that, with that remix. And then people would use images and memes um, to also reference, reference him um, after his disappearance. And so 
it became pretty clear that memes and meme culture, remix culture were a very strong way for people to get a message out. And the internet in China is censored, is that right? Uh, there are a number of strictures on the internet, um, one of which is the Great Firewall, which uh, prevents access to, to sites like uh, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Um, and so when you're in China, it's, it's very difficult to, to, to access those sites. People do find ways around that. They can use VPNs, they can use other methods. For the most part, it's, they're effectively um, not available within China. And so the alternative sites um, are uh, sites like WeChat, uh, Sina Weibo, other social media platforms that have all the semblances and all the uses of, of social media that um, that folks would be familiar with in the West. But because it's it's operated internally in China, um, because the servers are located inside China, um, there is the ability to uh, to censor. And then in addition to that, um, you have uh, the phenomenon of the 50 cent party, which is a, a rumored um, internet commentator, uh, paid internet commentators who share messages, uh, frequently nationalist messages, um, as a way of, of influencing social discourse. Hold up, wait, what? Uh, paid internet commentators who share messages, uh, frequently nationalist messages, um, as a way of, of influencing social discourse. You talked about the censorship, that it's human censorship and also a keyword censorship mm-hmm. as well. How does the government censor something like memes when it is usually image-based? I think that's that's part of the why you have a lot of human censors is because memes are frequently images or videos, and not just that, but they're frequently ambiguous. Um, when you think about most popular um, memes that we see um, you know, around the world, they're frequently used in jokes and in joke humor. Um, you know, kind of uh, reference they reference humor that from the outside is completely opaque and it's difficult to understand. Like, what are these people laughing about? Um, and that that is actually really effective for building community and also confusing people who, from the outside, are trying to understand who's sharing political messages. You know, the, the ability to detect uh, these images and understand the political content behind them has improved thanks to optical character recognitions, image recognition. And then, of course, you still have the range of human sensors who can interpret what's happening, see what's going on. And you know, keep in mind that often those human sensors, um, can be, they can be young. They can be from the same generation. So they can understand the, uh, the in-jokes, the humor, the references um, uh, you know, fairly effectively. What's interesting about the Internet in China is that you don't always know what's considered censored content. As memes flourish, so does internet censorship. What we're seeing now is that there's still there's still a vibrant social and political meme culture. At the same time, the ability for the government to control the internet uh, and to control speech has also gotten stronger. And so the the, the use of memes uh, since 2011 is um, is is frequently well one it uh, it's not just political. You have a very broad, vibrant meme culture. Um, in general, in China, um, and so the the political means we're looking at is is just one thin slice of the kind of this broader um, internet culture, and you have this range of folks who talk about very sensitive issues. Then also people can talk about other social issues like uh, police corruption, gov- local government corruption, that that may not may or may not cross a line. One thing to keep in mind about how censorship and how kind of control of speech um, occurs in China is that it's frequently set up as a gray zone. People don't necessarily know where the line is, uh, where where they can and cannot say. And so, um, so you do still see um, a, a pretty vibrant meme culture, a political meme culture. Um, but then at the same time, the, um, the systems that are in place now, the, the, the use of a social credit system, uh, the use of real name registration, uh, the use of, of AI systems and into human kind of human censorship and detection mechanisms, you know, that all adds up to, to making it much more difficult uh, to have um, a vi- you know, kind of vibrant political speech. I learned from one of your talks that you've got to register to even use the internet with your real name and almost like you were getting a social security number in the States just to use the internet. Yeah, you know, we, we have similar concerns, um, I think, amongst for human rights 
activists with, I think, in, with Facebook, with the fact that uh, you have this kind of policy of real name registration. Now, in the West, that that, that registration is limited to one uh, social network, um, and uh, that uh, that registration doesn't reflect on your credit score, for instance. Whereas uh, the emerging uh, social credit system is, it aims to connect your offline activities, your online activities, and your identity um, all in one, so that you know anything you say online uh, can have uh, consequences in offline space. When I first heard about your work, I thought, wait, how do memes flourish in a censored internet environment right. yeah. where you've got to register as yourself? Because mm-hmm. that, to me, the yeah. anonymity of memes is the beauty and where so much of the remix happens. That's right. And so just looking generally globally around the world, it's very difficult to control meme culture. Uh, you know, you have the, this is effect like the Streisand effect, uh, which is the, the notion that uh, when you uh, try to suppress content online, uh, people will tend, tend to actually amplify it um, with great effect. And you see that play out in censored environments. But what's easier to control than meme culture is people's bodies people's credit systems, people's access to finance. The systems that we're seeing emerge in China, uh, we should pay great attention to. The fact that people can and have been arrested for uh, for spreading memes, political memes, um, suggests that the government and, um, and censors in general are catching up to meme culture. Why does the Chinese government want to control the internet and want to control speech? One of the primary reasons you do have these uh, censorship mechanisms is because of the internet's ability to help people organize in opposition to structures of power. We've seen that um, around the world, that uh, as people use the internet in a decentralized way to organize their movements, their movements become, um, in many ways, much more powerful. You've likened Chinese internet memes to political street art that you grew up with in L.A. How are Mm -hmm. those two related? Where do you find the commonality? What you have with street art is people are uh, remixing public space. They're taking control of public space and creating new narratives, new images, new symbols, telling stories, uh, frequently from marginalized communities, um, from, uh, from people who, whose voices you to- don't typically hear about in mainstream media. Um, and at the same time, uh, there is this anonymity to street art, there's this remixability to street art, and there's this, uh, this kind of irreverence um, frequently in street art um, that, um, that makes it such a vibrant culture. So as when I saw memes, I started to, to think a lot about, oh, this is interesting. This is people reclaiming kind of the digital streets of the, of the, of the web. What you see now, um, both in China and in, around the world, is people putting memes into their street art or taking photographs of street art, putting them on the internet and remixing those. And so in many ways, uh, street art and uh, meme, meme culture uh, are very much intersecting thanks to smartphones, thanks to the internet, thanks to Photoshop and other tools. You were working with a Weiwei in 2011, like you mentioned earlier, when he was taken by the Chinese government. What role did memes play in allowing you and other followers of his work to fight back? So um, 2011, some of the memes I observed, a number of them were puns on his name. Uh, so yet his name is pronounced Ai Weiwei, right? And so I believe Ai Weilai, which, uh, which means love the future. One of his nicknames on the internet was Ai Huzi, bearded eye. Um, and then that sounds a lot like Ai Huzi, which is a tiger cub eye. You can create these kind of endless remixes based on his name, based on his presence. And he also had an installation in London uh, that was a sunflower seed installation. Thousands of sunflower seeds at the Tate Modern. And those sunflower seeds became an iconic symbol. In China, sunflower seeds are a snack, um, a common snack, sort of like uh, french fries or potato chips. And so 
by posting memes of sunflower seeds, people were able to talk about him without making it overtly, you know, super obvious that they were talking about him. And so, of course, you know, it was this kind of cat and mouse game. You, you saw that uh, as people were posting things, censors were catching up to those puns, and then, uh, you know, then people were coming up with new puns, and then censors catching up to those. And so, it's not like you had this, you know, completely free expression. Is that people were catching on to them, just as I, as an observer, was able to see see what was happening and then kind of understand what was happening. But then you had this other effect because of his international profile. Is that those memes then started to spill out? You saw them pop up in Hong Kong, where you don't have this the same kind of um, censorship restrictions in as you see in mainland. And then you also saw with the international art world referencing a lot of these memes, especially the Love the Future one, especially the sunflower seed one, seeds ones. So you had this kind of amplification effect that went from uh, kind of the meme culture in China um, reaching out into the broader world, um, into the international community, and then the international arts community. It made these different performance pieces, these videos that were able to raise um, international awareness. And so did that help Aweiwei's cause? It's difficult to say um, exactly how much the attention helped him. After 81 days in detention, he was released. A lot of writers have, have attributed the growing international pressure to the fact that he was released, that international awareness was, you know, helped along by a lot of, a lot of the memes. It's almost a privilege in that sense to be memed mm-hmm. because it's a way out and it's a way to draw attention to your cause. Um, when you look at the United States and you have uh, the story of Trayvon Martin, who was b- basically unknown until um, until shortly after he was killed, people made a number of, uh, of memes about him. They made the hoodie memes. Uh, they um, they made Skittles memes because he was um, he was shot while holding a bag of Skittles. And those those Skittle memes uh, were you know lots of creative art. Uh, you had uh, drawings of him. Um, and so in some ways, meme culture can can often you know respond to people who were once invisible or marginalized as well. And meme culture can lift up uh, marginalized stories and bring them to international attention. This comes with pros and cons, I think. Uh, the international attention can actually lead to backlashes. It can lead to uh, to increased risk for the people made visible. But it can also, with, with the right care and with the right motivations, uh, we also see that it brings much needed attention to individuals and, or, or people or communities whose stories may have been overlooked. And what was the official charge against Aweiwei? It was related to taxes. But uh, I think what you know what, what's important to note is that he was disappeared without due process. For those who don't know who Aweiwei is, can you just give us a brief primer on who he was and why he was so important and still is so important in Chinese culture. So Ai Weiwei is an artist, activist, and filmmaker um, who was based in Beijing and makes a number of really, really important conceptual pieces and sculptures uh, that engage both with notions of space, of identity, and then culture. He's moved to Berlin. He's had to move to Berlin. And uh, with his, his current work, he's actually um, in kind of increased his, his international engagements. And so starting to look at issues like the, the refugee crisis um, in Europe. WeChat and Weibo both have grass mud horse emojis as part of their mm-hmm. official keyboard. Can you talk about why that's important for someone who has no idea what those things are or why they're culturally relevant and why it's cool? So I think it was around 2009 that internet culture researchers started documenting the the emergence of the grass mud horse. And it's, uh, it's a profane pun. And so the grass mud horse uh, in Chinese um, is pronounced sao ni ma. Um, and so literally grass mud horse. But it sounds a lot like uh, another phrase uh, that when you change the tone, literally means um, in English, fuck your mother. And so the grass mud horse has long stood as a symbol of resistance to internet censorship. And it, it in, and in its very form, it was expressing how memes um, are resistant to censorship. I started observing on, on Sina Weibo and on WeChat that you had the grass mud horse appearing as official um, images, um, especially on, on Weibo, where you had the actual llama-like creature 
um, available as an emoji that you could uh, an emoji like image that you could select and actually put in your messages. And and I was, I was you know thinking through like why would this be happening? Why on WeChat also you have these stickers? When you understand this in the context of how the government is catching up to meme culture and is using co-opting meme culture, it's pretty clear that 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 co-optation of this symbol um, was a way of defanging it. Um, and was a way of uh, diminishing its power. Anything that was, uh, I think, Anne Hinokowitz, who um, editor at LA Review of Books, yeah, or that anything that's punk rock eventually gets co-opted by the mainstream. And I think we, we saw that. Um, we're starting to see that here with the grass mud horse. Can you talk about how the silliness of a meme can connect back to political power? Like how the co-optation almost goes both ways? Yeah, I think I think silliness um, and humor in general, in context, uh, you know, humor can be used in so many different ways. It can be used to marginalize people, to attack them, but it can also be used when it's punching up um, as a way to defang power as well. And so humor has this way of diffusing that, diffusing diffusing emotional power. And then at the same time, uh, that, that silliness, it's also a way of shielding your messages so that only the in-community knows it. Frequently, the reason I you know, think about memes as the street art of the internet is that it's in many ways the people's art, right? the people's media. Anyone can participate in meme culture. Anyone can create memes. They can come from anywhere. And there's a downside to that, too. Structures of the internet are very compatible with the goals of authoritarianism. Uh, they understand who your social networks are, what you like, where you spend your time, your political affiliations. I think what we need to understand is that you know, the platforms that we build, you know, they come with a, in a technical infrastructure that with a different politics can be used you know, with great effect to identify dissent, identify dissenters, and, uh, and put a lot of people um, at risk. And so the question that, that I think uh, in the West that we need to start asking is, given the spread of, of misinformation, given the spread of digital propaganda, what is the internet we want to create that makes it safer uh, for people while still protecting basic principles around free speech? I believe you're working on an upcoming book. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So, um, so I'm working on a book called Memes to Movements. So it will be published by Beacon Press in January 2019. And it's looking at um, the role of internet memes in social protest and power. Thank you so much, Anne, for walking us through memes to movements in China and elsewhere in the world. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Yes, This was really great. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Anne. Feel free to at me your strong opinions about this episode or anything that came up for you while listening to it. Tweet me at PopCultPirate or slide into my DMs on Instagram at PopCulturePirate. If you're looking for another awesome feminist podcast to listen to, check out my friends Anne and Amina's podcast called Call Your Girlfriend. And if you want more Strong Opinions Loosely Held video content, perhaps like our monthly original long-form video series, head to Facebook watch page called Strong Opinions Loosely Held. Our episode today was produced by the wonderful Julia Alsop with help from the very buff Jay Brunson. It was edited by the awesome David Zuckerman and myself. And keep listening, because there's another episode after this.